I'm excited to continue to go through our church values this morning with you. Um, last time that we were together, we talked about the first value, which is Jesus is the center. And um, that's because we believe that Christ literally affects everything that we do, not just a few things, but when we have him at the center of our lives, literally we can uh, continue to grow in Christ-likeness and in godliness. And today we're going to continue talking about our values by talking about what uh, we are willing to give up uh, for the truth. And so we are willing to give up what we believe for the truth. So if you have your Bible, go over to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to kind of take more of a, uh, a Bible study approach type uh, to this message today. So um, I really want you to just continue to be engaged throughout this message. Take good notes. Um, uh, just, just follow along. And I believe that this is going to help us all to grow um, just a ton today. Matthew 19 we're going to handle sections of Scripture, and what I want to do and what my goal is, is to help uh, teach through these sections of Scripture how we should handle Scripture so that we can identify what it is that Scripture is trying to show us so that we can understand how to truly uh, define truth based on Scripture. So Matthew 19 <clears throat> and um, verse 24 is where we're going to start. Matthew 19 uh, and verse 24 where it says, again, I tell you, this is Jesus talking here. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Um, how many of you have ever heard that scripture used and then a story told on top of that scripture where they said uh, the, the person teaching or maybe something you read said it's easier for a rich person uh, to get through the eye of the needle than it is for him to inherit the kingdom of God. All right, Jesus is telling his disciples this. And then you heard somebody say that the eye of the needle was a gate in Jerusalem and camels had to get down on their knees uh, in order to get through this gate and they could do it, but they had to be strategic about it. And if the camels would get down on their knees and if they would humble themselves like our hearts, then we could go through this particular passage and we could actually get through this. Any, anyone heard anything like that similar? I, I see a few hands. A few of you are kind of like, yeah, I've, I've heard similar things like that before. Can I tell you that um, there is no such gate, nor has there ever been such a gate um, called the eye of the needle. Um, can I tell you that that was not uh, even uh, spoken of until somewhere uh, around the 17th century? Uh, somebody came up with that, and that began to be perpetuated, and now people take that, and they just swallow that. And they just take that as truth. And they go, oh, well, uh, it, 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 you know, this is what that really means. And it makes us feel smart. And it makes us feel like we have some insider scoop to what's happening in the Bible times when these things were written. And we have a greater understanding. But at the same time, when we read that, a lot of us may have misinterpreted that scripture and believed something that was not true. But because someone told us that, uh, someone we trusted, and maybe even that person was just you know, uh, sharing that from someone they had learned. They weren't necessarily trying to deceive you. They weren't necessarily trying to pull the wool over your eyes, but they, you thought it was helpful. You thought it was beneficial, but yet you go, oh man, I've been thinking this certain way based off of this, but man, I, I, I didn't know that that actually was not factual. That wasn't true. So how do I know what truth is? And also, how do we give up what we believe 
for the truth because all of us have different lenses. All of us different, have a different set of lenses we've been handed um, by the way we've been raised, by the experiences that we've had, um, by the person uh, that we married, by uh, the way that uh, perhaps life has thrown us different curveballs. It's changed what we value. It's changed what we think is right, what we think is wrong, uh, what we believe is true, all these things. And we all have these different lenses that we look at it through, and, and all of us have different lenses that we may approach Scripture from because we bring all of that, all of our upbringing, all of those thoughts, all of our processes and the way that we receive truth, what we trust, what we don't trust. We bring all that to Scripture. And then also we take um, all of our religious biases to Scripture as well. We take our cultural biases, the way that we think. We, here we are, uh, Westerners, in 2020, and we are reading Scripture and trying to interpret a book that was written uh, to Eastern people with Eastern thinking, Eastern philosophies, and it's an ancient text, thousands of years old, and we're trying to make sense of it. So when we do that, when we approach it with our lens and when we approach it with uh, trying to just figure out, we can be prone, if we're not careful, if we don't learn how to handle Scripture, we can be prone to error. So let's not just chase after every fairy tale, every idea, everything that we want the Bible to say, everything that we've maybe even perhaps heard that it says, because how many of you have ever heard uh, things that maybe someone said was in the Bible that you found out later wasn't in the Bible at all? You know, um, don't tell your children, you know, you know what the Bible says, cleanliness is next to godliness. Yeah, that's not in the scripture, you know, uh, <laughs> things like that, that we think just because it sounds spiritual or just because it sounds true, oh, it must be in the Bible. Is it in the Bible, though? Um, how do we know for sure? How do we know cer for certain that when we read Scripture that we're really understanding it? Because I think one of the biggest tactics that the enemy uses to keep people from ever approaching Scripture, and with this new year, a lot of you have jumped on and you, you've wanted to get a part of this read the Scripture through in a year uh, type Bible reading plan. I think that's wonderful. But I know that there's a lot of questions coming up. I know that there are a lot of things I've been reading on some of the postings that you've been doing where a, a lot of people just have some confusion. And man, let me tell you, <laughs> sometimes this is just me. Um, I, sometimes I personally wish that Genesis wasn't the first book of the Bible um, because it's a really difficult book. And a lot of people, when they start reading Scripture, they start in Genesis. And they're like, what is happening? And it's just really difficult. Right off the bat, it's really easy to get discouraged. Have you found yourself, perhaps, if you've been reading the Bible through this year, you just started in Genesis, have any of you, and, and let's be honest, let's raise our hands because both of my hands are up as an answer to this question. Have you gotten confused at all? Anyone? Yeah, I think, yeah, okay. Yeah, there's some stuff in there we don't understand. And there's some stuff, honestly, uh, we'll never understand in this lifetime. And we just have to be okay with that. There's things that I'm always growing in, things I'm always learning. And here's the, the thing we always need to keep in mind. And I love this because uh, one of my uh, good friends and my favorite Bible teacher, Dr. Bob Utley, says this. He says, I don't know what I don't know. So I'm not privy to the things I don't yet know. So for me to just say I've got it all figured out is pretty arrogant. And so I would not listen to a Bible teacher that thought they had it all figured out. I would much rather listen to someone who is humble, teachable, someone who say, man, I don't know what I don't yet know. I, all I know is I'm walking in the light that I have until I am given more light. Uh, all I can see is as far down the road as I can see until God helps me to see what I have not yet seen, but I don't know what that is because I don't yet know 
what I don't know. Does that make sense to anybody? Um, so here's the value, and here's the why statement behind it. We are willing to give up what we believe for truth because Scripture defines truth, not our ideas. Amen, somebody. Now, I, I, I told him I wanted to sit down and have a table today because I didn't want to get too preachy. But when I say stuff like that, it makes me want to just flip over into preaching mode. Um, because Scripture defines truth, not our ideas, not our thoughts, not the things that we want to be true, no matter how badly we want them to, tr to be true. Listen to me. Sincerity does not define what is true. I can sincerely believe something and be sincerely wrong, right? I, I can sincerely and genuinely and honestly believe something, but I need to understand my ideas don't define truth. My thought processes don't define truth. What does define truth? Scripture. We have to start with the premise of Scripture, not my experiences, not what I feel, not what I want to be true. So, so many times when, when we start to talk about how to define truth throughout Scripture and how to properly handle Scripture, when we talk about these things, some people will say, well, I don't see anything wrong with interpreting this Scripture this way because when I read it this way, it makes me feel good. And, that's, and I understand that. I understand you may read certain things and it may feel good for that thing to be true. And the thing that you may be reading and feeling good about, there may be nothing wrong with that thing. And, and in another text or in another place in Scripture, that may be true. But for us to be diligent, for us to be men and women of God who are growing in properly handling Scripture, even if it feels good and even if it has some measure of truth, don't take it and run with it. You need to make sure you're handling all Scripture the same with respect and with integrity because we don't want to be people who just follow our own leanings and our own biases and we follow um, what we want to be true. Amen, somebody. So let's go over to Matthew chapter 7 um, and Jesus illustrates this idea of foundational truth here in Matthew chapter 7 verse 24 and he uses this illustration to do it. Matthew 7, verse 24, we're going to read through verse 27. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And so we can see how important that it is that we build our lives on something solid. Amen? And that when we are looking at Scripture, that we don't want to base our beliefs or our views of God based simply on how we feel, because our feelings can be much like that shifting sand. What we want to be true can be much like that shifting sand. Have you ever worked really hard on a really cool sand castle and then all of a sudden the tide rolls in and you're like, all of my work, there it goes, it's gone. Um, I, I remember as a kid going on vacation and spending a lot of time making really cool creations in the sand and then all of a sudden the tide comes in and it's gone. And that can be just like our emotions. It can be um, the things we want to be true. It can be our experiences. Some people think this is true because I have experienced it and because I felt it, because I, I believe this sincerely to be true or I've seen this or whatever the case may be. But what does Scripture say? We have to build our lives and our doctrine, our theology, we have to build it 
upon something that is solid. And we believe at Word of Grace that Scripture defines truth, not our ideas. So we want to build our lives on truth. Scripture alone is the only source for faith and practice. Not tradition, not religion, not institutions, not additional books, not how I feel. Holy Scripture. It is holy. You know what that word holy means? It means set apart. It's a cut above from everything else. It's holy. Holy Scripture is the foundation of truth. And we believe things that aren't true because oftentimes we're ignorant of Scripture. And I'm not putting anyone down saying that they're, they're foolish or stupid. No, I'm saying ignorant, meaning we don't yet know what we don't know, or we may be misunderstanding something, and, and that we may be ignorant of Scripture. And we believe things that aren't true because people abuse Scripture to serve their agenda. They use Scripture to back up their views. And when you use Scripture to back up your view, in other words, you approach Scripture with your thoughts and you go, where's that in the Bible? Let me go find that so I can prove that my, my saying, my thought process is right. And then we cherry pick some Scripture and go, there, see? That's called proof texting. It's going to Scripture really the reverse way that we're supposed to. We should allow our truth to be defined and truth be defined to us from Scripture. In other words, we should not go to Scripture to try to back up some idea or some thought or some belief that we have. Rather, we should, we should, we should derive all of our values and our truth from what Holy Scripture says, not be someone who is proof texting. An example of proof texting um, would be uh, one of the most egregious ones, and you've heard me talk about this before if you've been around Word of Grace very long, but Philippians 4.13 what does Philippians 4.13 say? Anybody, help me out. Let's see. I can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, um, a lot of people use that. I can score the game-winning touchdown. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. One more rep. I can get it in in the gym. One more rep. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's what people will take and use that as a, a text out of context because that's not what that means. As we look at the scripture in context, we find that Paul is actually talking in context about the fact that this guy's in jail, he's been suffering, and he's trying to encourage the church to say, listen, the reason I can endure suffering, the reason I can endure the challenges that I'm going through is because Christ has given me a purpose and a strength to continue to say yes, whether things are going the way I want them to go or whether things are not going the way I want them to go. I can do all of these things. I can do all things. I can continue to move forward because Christ has given me the purpose, the reason, the strength. That's what we should pull out of that, not I can win the race because I can be faster than everyone else because God likes me more than everyone else. And I know that you love the Packers, but God's not going to help the Packers win, okay? Uh, it's just when you pray for those things like that, oh, we can, you, we can do all things. Whoever's saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me the most, or whoever can pray the loudest or pray the longest, we think that somehow gives us the edge or, or the advantage, and we're misinterpreting Scripture, and we're not handling uh, our expectations of who God is and exactly how we're supposed to be using Scripture. It's actually much more powerful of a truth to properly and contextually look at Philippians 4.13 than it is to just use it as my little boost in life. Even though it makes me feel good, it makes me feel like I can get through this hard day, I can, I can accomplish this goal because I can do all things through Christ. That's not what Paul was saying. And so we don't want to take Paul's words out of context 
no more than you want, want to be taken out of context when someone may quote you. What do you do when someone quotes you, uh, especially if it's like your, your spouse or your kids? Well, that's not what I meant, right? We want to, we want to quickly fix that, you know, or, or if the boss calls you in the office and you have to have a meeting, well, I heard you said this or, or, or this email went out. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant. Did you read the whole thing? Actually, if you would have been there for the whole conversation, you would have heard all of this. Don't just take my one thing and make it a tweetable. Don't, don't, don't just take that one text. No, look at the whole text thread. We do this all the time. And, but yet, we, when we approach Scripture, sometimes we can just haphazardly just pull one out and we can just run with it because it sounds more marketable than others. Is that really what it's saying? Is that really what God intended so let's look at that. Um, another, uh, another one is Revelation 3 and 20, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, right? And he's wanting us to, and, and we'll take that scripture to mean evangelism. We think that that's a great evangelism text. So, you know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And, and, and you know, basically we, we, we want to invite Jesus in, let him in, you know, open that door to receive Christ. And if you look at the context in Revelation chapter 3, he's not talking to lost people. In Revelation chapter 3, he's talking to the church. Because all of those first few chapters of the book of Revelation, there's seven churches that are being addressed. And he's addressing the church in Laodicea. And he's letting them know, behold, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. And he's talking about the church, not those who have not yet uh, found Christ. He's talking to the brothers there. It changes my whole perception now of what this means when I look at it in context. Um, so we don't want to be people who prove text, and we don't want to be people who are interpreting Scripture as eisegetical allegory. And I know that that's a big word, but eisegesis is a process in which we'll make Scripture about us where we will take it and just make it all about us instead of the point that it's about. And we're looking to what is the Bible trying to say to me. And when we approach it that way, we, we run into the danger of just making things about ourselves and we'll abuse Scripture, either intentionally or unintentionally. And actually, this is the biggest thing that I was the most excited to help us to all see to talk about today because this is the biggest thing that we see happening in our culture today. It's the most dangerous type of allegory that there is. It's used to introduce a person's um, ideas or their personality into the Scriptures allegorically. And when we do this, we can use it as an example for anything we want, and we totally dilute the power of it. We can use it for anything we want, and we do this all the time. Uh, one of the ones that we, we love to do this with and preachers love to do this with is David and Goliath, where they'll talk about, you know, it, basically uh, we'll put ourselves, uh, we'll look at David as being us, right? And we're looking at ourselves being David, and maybe we, the, the stones can be, you know, the Word of God or certain scriptures, and we're spinning those scriptures around, and we're repeating those scriptures over and over again, and then we let those scriptures fly in the face of our enemy, our Goliath, and it takes them down by the power of the Word, and the church goes, woohoo, wow, what an encouraging, powerful sermon. I can use the Word of God to take down my Goliath. That's not what that story is about. You see, but we do things like that, and it inspires us, and it encourages us, but we want to make ourselves David. Listen, you're not David in the story. If there's anyone who has won the victory over a, an allegorical Goliath, it's Jesus. Who are you in the story? You're the scared Israelites who are waiting for someone else to come and rescue you and save you. The problem is that we always want to make ourselves the hero in the story. 
And, and, and when we use unhealthy eisegesis, we will use the Bible as allegory. If we use the Bible as allegory, where's the power of it? Because we can use any story that's not even from the Bible as allegory. One of the most spiritual stories we could tell would be Mary had a little lamb. Whew. Mary had a little lamb. Yes, she did. His name was Jesus, and his fleece, come on, somebody, was white as snow. He was without sin, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb, hello, come on, help me out, somebody, the, the lamb was sure to go. Little Miss Muffet, she sat on her tuffet. Yes, she did, all her problems. She sat on those things. She was just eating her curds and whey, and it was bland. And, and you see, do you understand what I'm doing here? People do this with Scripture all the time. I can do that with any story. I can do it with anything. And that's what I'm trying to tell you and show you by using ridiculous hyperbole. I can show you and tell you that people do this with Scripture all the time, and they can make it say whatever they want it to say. When teachers began to do that, when people began to teach that way, friends, can I tell you that it dilutes the power of God and it always makes us the hero. Jesus is the hero. End of story. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater of any character that we see in Scripture that we would want to champion. Jesus is greater. And it should all point us to Christ. And we want to make sure we're handling Scripture appropriately. I need to make sure that, that, that I'm handling Scripture uh, uh, correctly. Even, even Let's go over, let's do this together because we're going to just do some Bible study. And I hope this helps you today. Uh, Revelation chapter 3. Let's go over to the book of Revelation. Ooh, everybody gets excited when you go to Revelation because you start reading it for like, you know, like two or three books, and then you're like, yeah, I have no idea what this means. I'm going to stop. <laughs> Revelation chapter 3. All right. So let's check out Revelation chapter 3. This is the passage where the angel of the Lord is writing to uh, the seven churches, and this particular passage, he's, he's dealing with the last church, all right? So we're at the end of the list. You can go back and you can read all of those other churches that he dealt with and had messages to. Those messages were to seven actual churches that actually existed, all right? It would be like someone sending an actual letter in the mail to Word of Grace, an actual church that exists, and them dealing with issues we actually needed to be called out on, all right? So we need to understand that. Now, we can still learn from this, and we can still see the heart of God through this, but we first have to start with the premise that this was an actual church that was receiving a prophetic message from the Lord, and John was writing these on the Isle of Patmos as he was in exile, and the Lord shows up, and, and, and the angel gives him these things to write, and, and these are the words of Christ. Um, Revelation chapter 3 um, let's read verse 15. Uh, this, is, this is what the angel says. He says, I know your works. He's talking to the church. You're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm, you're neither cold nor hot. I'll spit you out of my mouth. Okay, so let's stop right there. A lot of times when you hear stuff like this, um, what's going to happen is that you're going to hear a preacher say, God wants you to be hot and on fire for him and passionate for him. Don't be cold. He'd rather you be hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm, he's going to spit you out of his mouth. How many of you ever heard something like that? Uh, as a youth pastor, can I tell you that was one of my favorite texts to preach, and that's how I preached it. I preached it that way. You need to be hot. You need to be on fire for the Lord. Yeah, and, and that's true. So there's some semblance of truth. But why do we demonize cold? You ever thought about that? Why don't we say just be hot? He said don't be lukewarm. He didn't say don't be cold. 
Now, if we take that to mean cold means bad or disconnected from God and hot means on fire for the Lord, then we're saying God wants people to be disconnected from him? That's not what he said at all. Is that the message? Is that the heart? Do you see how we can make this dangerous? Be hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. What we don't realize here is that he's not demonizing cold and saying cold is bad and hot is good. He's not using that to be the spiritual temperature or passion that we approach God with. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here is that if you look at Laodicea, where it was geographically located, and any good commentary will tell you this, that Laodicea did not have a water source of their own. They had to have water piped into them from aqueducts. The nearest towns, one of them was known for its extremely hot springs. The other one was known for its extremely cold, cool, refreshing springs. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm outside on days like today, I don't want cold water. But if it were August, I would not want hot water. I would want cold water, right? So both can be helpful. Both can be useful. So because the water was pumped in through aqueducts, by the time that it arrived to Laodicea, it was not hot and it was not cold. It was lukewarm. And the angel was using that, 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 that actual literal <clears throat> condition of their water to be like their spiritual condition. He was saying, you're not hot just like your water. You're not cold just like your water. It would have made sense to those people in that instance. But what it doesn't mean is that God wants you to be on fire for him or he just wants you to just completely forget about him and not even try to follow him and be cold. That's not what that means. Are you hearing this? Are, are, are you seeing the danger of, of, of this? You know, I, I think that we've got to understand something. The Bible is not about us, and we should not infuse ourselves into the story as the hero. The Bible is the story of God, and he's showing us his heart for us. He's showing us his love for us, his value for us, and he's showing us purpose, and he's showing us who he is, and he's helping us by giving us this truth and it's to be made for his glory to point us to him and to help us to depend on him and learn how to walk and live for him. Not so we can just have a bunch of fortune cookie, cookie cutter things that we can just do whatever we want to with or stories that we can just use as allegorical to make ourselves feel better. We need to understand how to properly deal with scripture because scripture cannot mean what it never meant. <clears throat> That may be controversial for some of you. You may, you may wrestle with that, and that's okay. I don't mind you wrestling with it, as long as you can still walk out and we can be friends. Scripture cannot mean what it never meant, because you can disagree with me and we can still be friends, because guess what? Um, I don't know everything. Uh, I don't know everything because I don't know what I don't yet know. But here's the thing we need to understand. If we believe that Scripture was written by people who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, do we believe that, yes or no? Yeah, okay. We believe that Scripture was penned and authored by people who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They weren't just writing down ideas. They weren't just writing a journal and someone said, let's put that in a book and call it the Bible. No, we believe these people were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes? This is not just a normal book. This is something that far outweighs any normal text. This is something inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is holy. It is separate. It is set apart. So therefore, we must accept that the Holy Spirit's original intentions or what the Holy Spirit originally meant is still what it means. In other words, the Holy Spirit hasn't changed his mind on what the original intent and the meaning was. Somewhere along the line, the Holy Spirit goes, ah, I meant that for them, but eh, we'll, uh, we'll make it mean whatever for you, whatever makes you feel good. Whatever you like, whatever suits your pet doctrine or whatever proof text you want to use. The Holy Spirit is not confused. 
The Holy Spirit's not wishy-washy because how do we know that? Because Jesus himself said that a wise man is going to build his house on what? The rock. He's not going to build it on what? Sand. Why? Because sand always does what? It changes. It moves, right? It's never the same. He's going to build it on the rock. We also know something else about the character of God from Scripture. We know he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? And because he has said these things about himself, we can trust that he is true and faithful to his word, not only with the actual words, but with the intentions of those words. That he's not changing. He's not wishy-washy. He is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. So here's the thing. That's why we have to accept in Scripture that certain situations are cultural and not everything that's plainly stated in the Bible is plainly followed. I know that's controversial. Not everything that's plainly stated is plainly followed. I'll give you a good point in case. Not everything that's plainly stated is plainly followed because in 2 Corinthians 13 and 12, my Bible and your Bible says, greet each other with a holy kiss. I got no sugar this morning from any of you. <clears throat> well, pastor, that's a cultural thing. That, you know, that, that's just saying a greeting. Okay, I would agree with you. Don't come up and kiss me after church. Please. There are some of you more than others. Please. Do not come up and kiss me after church. You know who you are. Um, so, but when we see that, we, we, we go, okay, there's something plainly stated in there that I understand there must be a cultural context there because none of us followed that. We're all violating Scripture then in that case. Well, should we be doing that? Oh, my goodness. We, we start asking those types of questions. Should we be doing that? Or is that a direct command to us? Or is that something that we look at in context, understanding that's part of the culture of that day. The Holy Spirit doesn't change the original meaning. He doesn't change the original intent to fit your situation because the Bible is not about you. The Bible is about God, and it shows us God's character. So we got to stop making stuff up and giving the Holy Spirit credit. Oh, don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. we got to stop making stuff up and giving the Holy Spirit credit because it's what a lot of people do. They'll make stuff up, and then they'll say, the Spirit told me. Like, oh, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> you know, especially if it's someone you, you respect or someone that you trust. Well, the Holy Spirit told me that this means this. Okay, well, whatever. I mean, I guess this guy, he's sold more books than I have. You know, and he's got more people going to his church than I do. Or, you know, this person knows the Bible more than me. Who am I to argue with the Holy Spirit said the Bible really means this? Well, I'll tell you who's to argue with it. The Bible. The Bible is who. That's why we base our beliefs off of Scripture, not just off of what someone else says, even if they stamp it with the Holy Spirit, because they're going to be held accountable for that. I am very cautious, very careful to go around stamping things with God said. I've been here for eight years, and I can probably count on one hand the times that I have truly said that God actually said or told me or led me to do this and, and I've stood before you as your pastor because I'm very cautious. I do not go to our board and say, hey guys, God said do this. And they go, well, what are we going to say about that? I guess pastor said God said. If we argue with that, we're arguing with God. No, I'm very cautious with that because James 3 and 1 says that teachers are going to be held to a stricter judgment. I take that very seriously, very seriously because I understand that I have been given a platform of influence and that platform of influence is not because of me, but it's because of God. And I understand the role and responsibility that I've been given. So I need to make sure that I handle that scripture, that I handle being led by the Spirit, that I handle that with all seriousness, and that I don't let myself get in the way. Amen? 
Because if I let myself get in the way, then all of a sudden you're following Derek, not Jesus, and nobody wants to follow Derek. We need to follow Jesus. Don't be like Derek. Be like Jesus. Amen? So we need to make sure that we're keeping things in context and that we are truly following the Scripture, not just a person, not just an idea, um, because people are, are, are broken, man. They, they have a tendency to be selfish. Have you noticed that at all? Anybody notice people have a tendency to be selfish? I mean, not any of you. I'm talking about your neighbors and coworkers and things like that. Uh, no, all of us have a tendency to be selfish. So that means that we can make stuff about us that wasn't supposed to be about us. We can do that very easily. Um, so don't make stuff up and give the Holy Spirit credit. We must begin with the original hearers and readers. That's where we must begin. And I say hearers or readers because sometimes when we look at the audience who was the original recipient, sometimes that original audience were, were hearing. That was who it was intended for. That was actually heard. So we're reading something that Jesus said. Sometimes it was a letter that was being read, like the epistles to the churches that Paul wrote. These people would have read this. This helps put me in a different mindset when I approach Scripture. This was something someone would have read, or this is something someone heard. And so we must begin with original inspired intent. We must only understand words only have meaning in sentences, and sentences only have meaning in paragraphs, and paragraphs only have meaning and make sense in the literary unit or the section of content. For, for example, um, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapters uh, 11 through 14 deal with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all right? That section of Scripture would be a literary unit. It's all dealing with the same subject matter, all right? So for me to properly understand whatever text I may read in that block of Scripture where I can obviously read and see that he's dealing with the same content throughout, I need to make sure that I'm understanding whatever Scripture I just read in light of that sentence that I read, in light of that paragraph that that sentence is living inside of, and inside of the paragraph that's dealing with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, I will take something and I will misuse it. And I think it's kind of funny um, that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is wedged in there, right? And a lot of people use that at weddings. Oh, he must be talking about marriage and weddings. No, he's not talking about that at all. He's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And if you look at it that way, he's not talking about, oh, uh, uh, love each other in, 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 in the way that, you know, he's talking about between a husband and a wife. No, he's talking about the way that we're preserving unity and loving each other and not being divided over the idea of the pursuit of spiritual gifts and people trying to outclass each other and outspiritualize one another. That's the context of the type of love that he's talking about when he says love is patient, love is kind, all those things. That's the context of that, that, that what we do is sometimes we'll pull the Scripture out and we'll just apply it to our situation and we won't even consider the rest of it. Now, sometimes it still may apply. It may apply. It doesn't have to apply situationally uh, similar, but it, can't, it has to be considered. How is this situationally being used and what was the original intent of the Holy Spirit-inspired author? We must look at Scripture that way. So here's the process. Here's what that, that's called. We're going to get academic a little bit for just a second. We need to start with proper interpretation or exegesis. That's that word there, okay? And it's up on the screen so you can spell it. Um, exegesis. We have to stop, start with proper interpretation, exegesis. We want to be good exegetes, all right? And we want, that's why I try to teach the Bible here at Word of Grace in an expository way to where I give you a lot of the, the background. Do you, you ever, have you ever caught this, that if you've been here for any length of time, that when I've taught you Scripture, 
I always try to, even if I'm just using one scripture, I'll try to tell you Paul was writing this to the Romans and this is what was going on. Have you ever heard me say something like that before? The reason I do that is because I'm wanting to set the stage to help you understand who the original audience was. Because when you hear that, it helps you make better sense of it. And you go, oh, okay, that's doing proper exegesis by understanding who this was being written to or, or, or read to, uh, understanding the, the, the setting of what's happening around the body of text, and then apply it with what it means here and now. So that's the other part that it, Bible teachers call hermeneutics, okay? So we're dealing with exegesis and hermeneutics. And I know this is really academic. Don't check out on me, please. Exegesis and hermeneutics are vital in the life of us handling Scripture. And, and, and I want us to be a church who is equipped. It's my job to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's my job to equip you. So today, yes, it's not as preachy as Pastor Derek normally is, but I'm equipping you today in a different way because I want you to understand why we're willing to give up what we believe for the truth and how to mine that truth out of the Word of God because I don't want us to be a church full of people who is blown away by every wind of doctrine that just comes along, every new church fad. You understand? I don't want us to hear something that's popular, something that, that, that's catching a lot of momentum and us just get sucked up into it and it could be error, all right? I don't want us to just accept everything from every popular speaker. And I don't want you to always have to come to me and say, well, pastor, what do you think about this speaker or this book or this thing? I mean, I'll give you my opinion, but I would rather you be able to be mature enough to discern those things on your own because you know how to handle scripture because you're going to need to be the one who answers to God for you and for your life and your family. And so I want to equip you to be able to do this, to properly interpret Scripture and also apply what it means here and now. So hermeneutics means we, we take that body of text and we go, okay, what does that mean to us today? And how do I use that today? All right? I cannot do hermeneutics. I cannot start with here and now. I have to start with proper interpretation. If I just go to the Bible and I just look for here and now, a lot of times I can get into error because I'm trying to proof text and make it apply to my situation. You understand? We need to start with proper interpretation then apply it to the here and now. So here's what we're going to do with our last few minutes here together. We're going to go through an exercise together and do a healthy uh, exegesis and then hermeneutics. We're going to do this together. It's going to be fun. Go over to Luke chapter 15. Kind of feel like you're in school today a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Those were happy mumbles, though, right? Yeah? All right. Good. All right. Amen. We want to learn this stuff, guys. This is important to our faith. This is so important. And this is a crash course, but this is vital. This is important. Luke chapter 15, we are going to read verse 11 through 32. We're going to read a parable, all right? So we're going to read this whole thing, and we're going to uh, interpret it. Uh, we're going to do exegesis. So uh, let's, let's look at this. All right. Verse 11. It says here, um, there was a man who had two sons. This is Jesus speaking, right? And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them not many days later. The young son gathered all he had. He took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22. But the father said to uh, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again and he is lost and, and is found. And they began to celebrate. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends, right? But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to his son, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, what do we normally call this story? What do we call it? Prodigal son. We call this story. This, this is the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son. So now if we're going to do proper biblical interpretation, we want to know who were the original hearers? Who was Jesus telling this parable to? Who was he telling this to? So let's back up. Let's look here. Let's go back to chapter 15 at the beginning. What does this say? Who was the original hearers? He says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. He tells them the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin. It's like Jesus is just, is, is just telling them these parables over and over again. And then he tells this longer parable of the prodigal son. So here we have a few characters in this story, all right, that we're understanding when we've backed up and we've looked at the context of what is happening here. And if you actually back up into the literary unit, you'll see this is a huge collection of parables that Jesus was teaching, all right? So here in this particular section, we see that there's a group of tax collectors, there's, and a group of sinners. Isn't that funny how those are differentiated? Why are those differentiated? Maybe a good thing for you to study and look up. Why are sinners and tax collectors differentiated in Scripture? So that, that gives you just a little clue, gives you a little window, maybe something for you to study. We're not going to go that deep today. But <clears throat> tax collectors, sinners, and that's not all that's in the crowd. Who else is there? The Pharisees and the scribes. Now, who's probably happier to hear Jesus' message at this point? Probably the sinners and the tax collectors, right? The Pharisees and the scribes, they obviously have ill intent in this gathering as all these people are gathered around Jesus listening to him. So what are they doing? Are they reading this or are they hearing it? They're hearing it, right? Jesus is speaking to them. So when I read this, I want to put myself in the position of hearing this, hearing it because he's speaking to tax collectors and sinners and, and scribes. Now, why did Jesus start telling these parables? That's another question we could ask ourselves as we're doing exegesis. We're trying to understand and interpret it properly. As we look at it, we see why is Jesus telling this story? Well, really what triggered this moment of these parables was the Pharisees and the scribes doing what? Complaining. So this is a response to the complaints of the, of the religious leaders. 
He's, he's not necessarily directly targeting the tax collectors and sinners as much as he is targeting the complaint because he wasn't even telling these stories until after we see in verse, uh, verse 2 up here uh, uh, where it says the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. What were they upset about? Why were they upset? Because Jesus was eating. He was spending time with tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus, he catches on to this, and verse 3 says, so... That word so is important because it lets us know Jesus is why. This is why this story is about to be told. So in response to the fact these guys were grumbling and complaining that Jesus was eating and spending time with sinners, Jesus told them this story. And he goes on to tell them all of these parables. He tells them about the lost coin, tells them about the lost sheep. He tells them about the reconciliation of the Father. So now that you know that, when you go and you look at the end of the parable, where the elder brother comes into play, the elder brother comes in and he's upset. He goes, Dad, this son of yours went off and, and, and spent all this money on prostitutes and, and I've been faithful. I've been here this whole time and you never got me and my friends even a goat. Who is the elder brother in that story of who Jesus is talking to? The scribes and the Pharisees. So, what is, so the point of that story, the main point, in response to the grumbling of the Pharisees, is Jesus is trying to show them what it is that heaven values, and he's also showing them their heart towards those who were lost. And he's showing them heaven thinks people who are lost coming home is really important, like a coin, like a sheep, and like a son. If you lost any of those things, you would be overjoyed at their return. But you guys are being more like this elder brother who was upset that he didn't even get a goat party. And this guy gets the fattened calf that's only reserved for special occasions. Now, you could dive a lot deeper into that parable if you wanted to, but at the basic foundation, the inspired part that you and I are reading, that's what it means. And we can't make it mean anything more than that, no matter how bad we want to. If we were to pull a scripture, one scripture out, and, and camp out on it, if we're using it incorrectly, we would be in danger of mishandling Scripture and doing eisegesis. But we can do proper exegesis. So now we can take this whole body of text that we just read, and we can understand what it means, and we can apply it in our lives. So now let's do hermeneutics. So we've done, we've done exegesis. We know what it means, and we know what it originally meant to those who heard it. So now what does it mean here and now to us? Well, a few things just off the top of my head as I'm reading this. I could go, wow, am, am, am I the elder brother, you know? It helps me to evaluate. Am I having that type of attitude? Um, you know, uh, wow, how am I receiving sin? How do I act around sin? Am I acting like the Pharisees and scribes? Or maybe I'm that lost person. I, I'm the coin, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm the sheep. I'm, I, and, and it makes you feel this overwhelming sense of love and acceptance from God. Wow, even though I could go and violate and do all these things, God still will accept me and love me? So I can receive that, and that would be true, and that would be proper, and that would be healthy. And we can see what those things mean, and it helps us now. We can apply it to our lives because we see the heart of God for us, but we had to start with proper interpretation. Are you getting this today? You see, as we look at that, it helps us to understand what's going on. Um, uh, there's a cultural significance in there of a pig farm. If there's one thing you know about people of Jewish heritage, they don't eat pork, right? We, we understand this. So for him to be working at a pig farm, that's a pretty low job, right? Wouldn't you think that a guy, because the original hearers, 
They were Jewish people. He's speaking to Jews who they didn't eat pork, right? And this guy's working at a pig farm. So he's working for a guy who is fattening up pigs to sell. So this guy, he's working basically for a, a, an unbeliever. He's not even attached to healthy relationships. He's with somebody who's outside of the Jewish faith. We can discern and see all of that. and We can get deeper and deeper with that as we look at Scripture. And this is how, as you're reading through the Bible, you can go through and properly interpret the, uh, the, the text. And as we look at that, we can see what Jesus was doing um, then and what he was trying, the point he was trying to make then. And it helps us to see how it applies to our life, hermeneutics here and now. That's a good, easy way to remember the word hermeneutics, even though you may not be able to pronounce it after today or remember that word. Just remember the here and now. That's what we're looking for after we've done proper uh, biblical interpretation and we've handled it uh, properly. We need to be willing to give up what we believe for the truth of what God's Word says. Because what man thinks, feels, or desires is irrelevant. <laughs> it, it, it really is. Uh, because uh, um, uh, I feel or I think is always, 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 let's say always, always trumped by the Bible says. Amen? It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I feel. It doesn't matter what tradition says. What does the Bible say? The Bible is the key. The Bible overrules all those things. The Bible is the ultimate authority when it comes to faith and practice. And one of my favorite Bible teachers is Dr. Bob Utley. And so what we've done is uh, when Dr. Utley was with us last year, um, we actually uh, filmed him, and uh, he taught on how to study the Bible. And we made a little 10-part series on that, and uh, they're just like three-minute videos, and we put those on our website, and it'll help you to go further and deeper in this topic so that as we as a church have the value of we are willing to give up what we believe for the truth, that means that I want to know the truth. I want to know what the Bible says, what it means, and I don't want to be handling it inappropriately. And I want to be making sure that our church is equipped to deal with false teachers because guess what? You live in a day and an age where there are so many voices and there are so many opportunities for people to have a voice. Anybody that wants it can have a blog, a YouTube channel. I mean, I used to having a TV show was a big deal. Now everybody can have a TV show. Everybody. And it's free. It doesn't cost you a dime. You can have your own TV show. You can have a voice. But with all those voices out there, how do we know which voices are true? We have to go back to something. What do we go back to? Do we go back to our tradition? Do we go back to what I think? Do we go back to what other people are saying? Or do we go back to the Word of God? I would beg you to go back to Scripture always. Test my sermons against the Word of God. If I'm in error, can you please let me know and say, hey, pastor, would you show me in the Bible where, 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 where that said, you said this, and, and, and I don't want to be wrong, you guys. I'm going to be held accountable for that. I, I don't want you to just take everything hook, line, and sinker, because what Derek says uh, gets trumped by the Bible says. Amen? And I want to be learning and growing, because I don't know yet what I don't know either. And I have my own lenses, and I have my own, my own filters, and my own junk that, that I, I interpret through. And I want to make sure that I'm right. That's all I'm trying to get after, is that I just want to be right. And for me to be right, I want to I study to show myself approved, a, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I want to make sure that I'm handling Scripture as holy, not as common. So as you're going through and reading the Bible this year, as you're, as you're getting into the Scripture, as you're looking at what it means, remember some of these things today, and then learn from guys like Bob Utley as well, who is just a master at teaching these things. 